You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Over the last 10 years, as journalist Christopher Ketchum has journeyed around the vast public lands of the intercontinental American West, he's found much of the region degraded by private industry operating at public expense. Livestock grazing, logging, oil and gas drilling, mass industrial tourism, activities that taken together are ruining habitat for wild flora and fauna and compromising the ecological integrity and long-term future of our great commons. Christopher is an investigative journalist who has written for dozens of publications, including the New York Times, Harper's, National Geographic, and the New Republic. He's reported widely from the American West for more than a decade. His book is a product of those years in the last wild places. The takeaway is that our public lands are being mismanaged. They are properly regulated. The federal land management agencies are, in fact, corrupted and captured by the very industries that they're supposed to uh, be regulating. So we're talking everything from the timber industry to oil and gas to hard rock mining to off-road vehicles to um, uh, livestock Livestock is a huge issue on the public lands. Um, uh, in addition, I think there's a problem with uh, with recreation, mass recreation, mass industrial tourism, um, which is also not properly regulated. So why did I write the book? Because I've traveled. I spent a lot of time in the in the public lands of the American West. I've traveled all around and uh, seen what's happening to our lands, and spent a lot of time with ecologists and biologists, who are really the only people I trust on the public domain, because they are the ones who have the who have the training and the eyes to see the ecological uh, devastation, the depauperate state of our public lands. The wiping out of native biodiversity, the wiping out of, of native plants and native animals. Seeing all this devastation, I figured, you know, something needs to be written about it and written about, you know, and written about in such a way that, um, that doesn't um, pretend that this is a partisan issue of Democrat versus Republican, but instead looks at it as a, as a, um, if you will, a civilizational issue, you know, a civilization in which we are trapped, which is capitalist growth maniac um, rapacity. And the public lands are being, yes, rapaciously consumed to satisfy capitalism and satisfy growth. And um, capitalist growth continues regardless of whether it's a Democrat uh, pulling levers or Republican pulling levers. Yeah, that's why that's why I wrote the book. The early reviews for your book, um, comparisons to Edward Abbey, certainly not a bad comparison, but Ed was talking about stuff exactly like this so, so long ago. And you even have references to several others who, who were uh, came before Ed, whose writing sounded an awful lot like yours, which is hard hitting. And it's, it, it's not pulling any punches at all. 
And it's been a long time since all of that. What do you think about the fact that you and I are having yet again this kind of conversation about public lands after all of the work and the billions of dollars that have been raised supposedly in service of rectifying these issues with with BLM and the Forest Service and livestock grazing and all of the stuff that you talk about? What do you think about the fact that we're still having this conversation as if it's not improved one iota well it's not as if it hasn't improved <laughs> that's the thing about it. i mean there are okay there are there have been there have been some improvements there is for example a reduction in the total board feet logged on the national forests. nonetheless the logging that goes on in the national forest should not be happening it's our public lands these are lands that should be conserved for well, for the other than human, and that's central to my argument. Now, why are we still having this argument? And why are, why are these problems persisting? Because we live in a society and a culture that views the non-human as expendable for our aggrandizement. That's it in a nutshell. Um, you know, the capitalist system is based on, on a, a, a essential loathing of the natural world. And that loathing um, turns into exploitation. And so, you know, Bernard DeVoto was writing about it and Edward Abbey is writing about it. Now I'm writing about it because that system hasn't changed. And that worldview, that worldview that reduces nature to quote unquote resources, that reduces nature to, uh, to utilitarian things to be used, um, to be dominated, um, that worldview hasn't changed. And it probably will never change. Unfortunately, unless you have a true upheaval in society. Now, Aldo Leopold, another of the of the great writers who um, informed my book, Aldo Leopold argued that we were headed in the right direction toward what he called the land land ethics, a sense of um, of extending the 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 sphere of rights beyond humans to the non-human, to the inhabitants of the landscape and to the land itself. And this would be a, a, a codification, if you will, of a rights of nature. And we may be headed that way, but man, it's going to be a long haul. I have a feeling that 50 years from now, some other dude is going <laughs> to <it's gonna> be <laughs> writing the same book that I'm writing, that I've just written, and making the same arguments. And that it's going to take a long time for, for this, this ideology of domination and use to pass away to something more advanced, something less primitive, something more holistic and understanding and compassionate and, and humble and restrained. And that's what, you know, that, that's the other reason I wrote the book, because I saw so little humility on the part of, our, of, of the, land, the, the federal land managers, who we entrust, by the way, as the, the, as the owners of this land, we entrust them to take care of the commons, to protect the commons. Well, they're not doing that. You talk a lot about um, specifics, that you allude to the fact that most people don't really even know the beginning of all of this, like the depth that this really reaches. Um, That when you look at social media and you watch people arguing about issues that make us and listeners of this kind of podcast roll our eyes like really that's like talking about recycling that's like talking about 
you know, the very bare bones, uh, one-on-one level education of conservation and respect for nature. Uh, and we roll our eyes and it, it seems like you have an awful lot of stuff in this book that would really make people, uh, surprise people. Well, I mean, I could tell you, for example, a story about, um, a, um, district manager of the BLM in Nevada and the Battle Mountain District, which is the largest BLM district in that state, named um, Doug Furtado, who was uh, battling with local livestock ranchers who have leases to graze on public lands, and battling with them specific over two issues. One, over the fact that they were overgrazing, violating their permits, and doing so um, with seeming impunity, and Furtado tried to end that impunity. And two, that they were violating the uh, the um, Wild Horses and Burrows Act of um, I guess 1970 that was passed 73. Anyways, the um, so they're violating federal law in in relation to their um, relationship with the wild horses. And um, well, guess what happened? Furtado's own bosses at the BLM came down on him, and um, you know, threatened to wreck his career. And I tell this whole story in, in the book um, about how I attended a, a public meeting with Furtado and a group of ranchers out in the field in the Battle Mountain District, out in the valley, um, not far from the city of Elko, I think it was. And um, they just they they literally it's like a public crucifixion of this guy. The ranchers the ranchers and Furtado's own boss, a guy named John Ruse, who was the state director of the BLM at the time. This is 2015, summer of 2015. Um, Furtado's own boss, Ruse, sides with the ranchers against Furtado in this public display of extreme animosity toward the BLM manager who's simply trying to uphold federal law that's <laughs> all he's doing yeah. he just he basically he tells me afterwards he says hey I, all i'm doing is trying to all i'm doing is following the law but guess what the ranchers don't want to follow the law and the the people who are captured by the ranchers in this case Furtado's own boss john ruse do not want to follow the law either so you know those are the kind of stories that I, that I tell. And they're rampant. They're all over the place in the public land. It's systemic. I mean, it's or you can take the example. It's systemic. It's everywhere. It's a major problem. And it largely goes unreported. How do we get people to even understand? Because the issues that they like us talking about are the more, they, just, they don't like us talking about any issues, but they don't mind that we stick around the fringes because nobody really is having this conversation you know, on a public platform, this is stuff that we all talk about at conferences and, you know, uh, and things like that, the people who know about these things, but it doesn't get out there. I mean, and that's one of the reasons that I'm so hopeful that your book sells 5 million copies because I, <laughs> I want million. people to know these oh, things. Okay. I know you want people to know these things. And I think in the knowing of it <clears throat> might become a little bit more, um, not militant, but you know, uh, just a little bit more active than they are. I mean, this is not a petition campaign. This is not a letter writing campaign. That might be some part of a big push, but there's just no big push right now around the real issues that you talk about in the book. 
Yeah, I think militant is actually the right word. I think a, a level of militancy with regard to defending the public lands with the laws that we have in place, the very powerful laws that we have in place, is in fact the right way to go. And that we, the public, need to stand up in outrage at what is being done to our land. Now, like I said, we have the laws. We have the Endangered Species Act. We have the National Environmental Policy Act. We have the, the Federal Land Policy Management Act. We have myriad laws, the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts, et cetera, et cetera. They can be used. They have draconian teeth if the regulators decide to, up, to apply the teeth. But that's the problem. They're not using the, these powerful laws in the way that they should be used. I mean, take, for example, the Endangered Species Act. You know, all across the public lands, there are endangered species that, if protected under the ESA, those protections would shut down extractive industry overnight, be over. Goodbye. But no, that's not what we're doing with the ESA. We soft pedal it and we, we, we diminish the threat to the species using, uh, using nefarious or rather um, using language that's uh, tricky and deceptive and, and, um, and basically designed to um, manipulate the public into thinking that things are better for these endangered species than they really are. So the, the, the larger point being that, um, yes, outrage and militancy, I think, are, are a valid response to what's going on on the public lands. And... I tried to channel my own outrage into this book to communicate it to the public so that we can all get in on this thing together and remember that it is our land. We need to make decisions about this land together, collectively. One of the things I fantasize about is a future, uh, hopefully soon, that people get interested in being on these boring committees and these things that uh, have been taken over because the guys who want to do what they're doing with the land, whether it's the grazing or, or minerals or oil or gas or whatever it is, they figured out how to circumvent the ESA and how to write that language. But also in just actual fact, those are the types of people who have loaded themselves onto commissions and on state level, federal level, they have influence at every single place that you can touch uh, the government, state, local, or federal, uh, and, and, you know, circumvent the law very easily, it seems. But they've been at this for quite a long time, and I fear that we have not. And it, it's not an easy thing to say, well, let's just go and get ourselves on these boards and these uh, commissions and, you know, and, and get our voice. Well, they've got that locked up. That's their gym. They took it over. Right. And, um, and that's, you know, discussion is one thing, but how do you envision us being able to do what we obviously must and, and having people, uh, scientists and, and conservationists and everybody uh, having those voices, um, having people even interested in doing this stuff? Because it doesn't seem, seems like we're willing to do a lot of petitioning and a lot of lobbying and things like that. But I don't see the same fervor around just getting your butt on these boring commissions and showing up for the meetings and making your vote count. Well, it's, it, it is exactly as you described. You have to join the committees, show up for the public meetings, um, 
add to the public commentary when there's public commentary uh, mandated under, say, NEPA or or other laws. Um, yeah, you got to participate. My form of participation is uh, write journalism. Now, I will say this, though, about journalism. Our job as journalists is not to propose solutions. That's for the policy wonks. That's for, that's for the public, maybe, to figure out. Our job, my job, is to identify corrupt institutions and place demolitions under them and try to destroy them because they're corrupt. So you ask me what, like what, what to do uh, specifically? I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't presume to have those answers. I'm not arrogant enough to say, even in my book, in the last chapter, you know, the last chapter is supposed to be the one in which the author comes, puts it all together and says, okay, here's what we're going to do to solve these seemingly intractable problems. I don't do that. I, in the end, I don't know. I don't know what, what needs to be done. I know that the thing needs to be changed. The system needs to be changed. And it probably requires something a lot more radical than sitting on committees and, um, and um, you know, and making public comments to uh, EISs. However, in the interim, those are necessary but not sufficient acts to change things. So, yes, get on the committees comment on the EISs, participate in the National Environmental Policy uh, Act processes required of federal land management agencies when they make decisions on our commons. Yes, participate. Call your congressman. Complain. Um, you know, make a stink. Make a stink. Go and show up at your congressman's office and say, why are you facilitating the rape and plunder of the American commons? And make an issue out of it. I actually think that people are deep in their subconscious very aware of the perversity of this thing called techno-industrial civilization in which we are trapped. But the culture doesn't allow us to properly and freely express our concern with that perverse state of affairs. I think people in their heart of hearts are a little freaked out by the, the fact that they'll walk into a public space and everyone around them will be staring at a little portable screen telecommunications device. An STD for short, huh? <laughs> screen <laughs> telecommunications device. Everywhere, ubiquitous, used by everyone, and and um and in that ubiquitous use, these machines seem to render human beings into um into component parts or simulacra. And they all look the same. And there's kind of an existential horror at that. I think people do feel that. I think, I think people feel an existential horror at the, at the biodiversity collapse that we have enabled. I think people feel an existential horror at climate change and what it means for not only our civilization, but for Mother Earth. I think there's, there is a, a feeling that things have gone wrong are going wrong, but we don't quite know how to correct it, and we don't quite know an alternative path. And my book is meant in part to tap into that sentiment, that feeling that, you know, something's awry here, something's, things aren't right. Um, we're headed down a path of civilizational suicide, and along that path, we're going to lay waste to the beauty of the world. That beauty being the incredible 
diversity of creation. Thirsting, people are thirsting for some alternative vision to the one that techno-industrial civilization gives them. While staring into the screens. Look, I got two daughters, right? I got a seven-year-old and a 22-year-old. The seven-year-old sees all around her the adults who she idolizes and emulates staring at screens. So what are we teaching her? I mean, it's inculcated. It's, in, it's, it's an inculcated learning. It's indoctrination. And so, yeah, people are staring at the screen, even though I think there's, there's an, an unease associated with what we're doing to the planet. The, the, when you look at like the, the, the tar sands up in Alberta, no one can look upon that wasteland without a sense of, of just absolute shame that we have done this. For what? For, you know, Ed Abbey would say, so we can power our electric toothbrushes? Yeah. <laughs> Some of the people staring into those screens are signing a petition, are learning something about That's an true. issue. And I think a lot of times, even I will say, you know, I'm doing something good with this technology. I'm learning. I'm keeping up on things. I'm subscribed right. to all the right people. I'm learning the right information as best as I can and follow the best people that I can. My stream of information looks a lot different than the average person, but I'm still using the phone and the technology and everything else to do it. And I think a lot of times we'll convince ourselves that it's for the greater good, that you know, most of the time right. I'm using That's this right. technology, so I'll even find myself supporting it. And it does, it puts us always mm -hmm. in it. And it wasn't the phones. Before that, it was, some, it was other stuff. We always had this conservationist right. guilt of driving places because we have to go places to howl for wolves to make mm -hmm. sure they're not in the, the place that we're trying to reintroduce them under the Endangered Species Act regulations. And we had to drive to those places. Mm -hmm. Couldn't walk. It, I write about that very thing, the, the sense of, of guilt and also the sense of hypocrisy in that to, to write this book about how, you know, how we're destroying the public lands in no small part for exploitation of um, fossil fuels. And I'm driving around <laughs> and flying all about to report the book. Kind of has an absurd quality to it, really. I mean, frankly, the best thing that conservationists can do is just, uh, as we were talking about earlier, don't leave the house. <laughs> like, don't, forget about travel. You know, after the 2000s, I mean, or, or just get really poor. That, that actually would, would save the planet if rich people, if the rich developed world lost tons and tons of money, because without consumption rates, without travel, the carbon footprint of the developed world. So 2008, you have the financial crash. What happens thereafter? The carbon footprint of the United States dropped precipitously. So years passed. Studies show up, studies appear that basically state or assert that, oh, this is due to natural gas. No, it was in fact due to the Great Recession. People had no money. There was a lot less travel. There was a lot less consumption. Ergo, carbon footprint drops. So, you know, we talk about the public lands about, for example, an alternative to the extractive economy in the public lands being the recreation economy, right? Well, the recreation economy is enormously energy intensive, enormously wasteful, and enormously consumptive. So how can the conservation community in particular, uh, green groups, large and small, claim that recreation is a, uh, is a true alternative 
to extractive industry, when in fact it depends on the very armatures of the extractive industry for it to proceed. So we do all that driving, we do all that flying, we do all that consuming, because you know there's lots of consumption involved in recreation. I mean, the, all the gear that you purchase, the RV or the ATV or the Jeep, and then you go out to restaurants a lot, and then you buy also the silly trinkets at the national park shop, and then you buy more junk at the local, uh, the, the gateway community um, that abuts the, the park. So Moab, for example, Moab, Utah, that abuts Arches National Park, or West Yellowstone that abuts um, uh, Yellowstone National Park. Are these really alternatives, truly sustainable green alternatives for the, of the, uh, in terms of the use of the public lands? No, they are not. Let's stop kidding ourselves. There's no small irony in the fact that if you are in an organization that's fighting for wolves um, and you're fighting against hunting um, of some kind and you use this argument that we've all heard, if we show up with the and we'll use the numbers for recreation to prove our point that we recreationists have spent this many millions or billions of dollars in this area and if we boycott if we get together we'll shut your state down or we'll shut that little abutment town down or whatever else i mean it's really weird when we use those arguments and it's like wait a minute those numbers you're quoting are horrible numbers too because they encompass everything that you just talked about Mm -hmm. Well, they represent a gigantic ecological footprint. Um, again, it comes down to capitalism. If we're going to gonna save the public lands from spoliation, then we've got to confront capitalism in all its forms. The recreation industry is another expression of, of noxious, obnoxious capitalism. But we don't like to call it that because it's convenient to find some seeming alternative to extractive industry. It's good for fundraising. It's good for... Um, it's a it's a uh, a seemingly meaningful fulcrum, as you just described, to to um, to alter the behaviors of um, or alter the policies that say affect wildlife that draw mass industrial tourists. So um, wolves in Yellowstone, to take one example. I mean, however, even with recreation, we don't see the value of wildlife in itself and for itself. It's intrinsic value. What about all that wildlife that no one cares about that doesn't attract the uh, the gigantic crowds and doesn't attract all the money associated with the gigantic crowds and all the consumption and the travel? Like for example, the endangered sage grouse or the steppe. You know, until recently, a little known bird, but beautiful, especially if you're a bird lover like I am. Who cares about the sage grass if it doesn't, you know, if we can't monetize it in some fashion, right? And that that there therein lies the <clears throat> the trap of of markets and of market fundamentalism inherent to capitalism. If if everything has to be measured by a monetary value, we will never save the natural world from plunder. There's always going to be some use of it that we can invent. And there's always going to be some part of nature that has no use and can't be monetized and therefore will not have any market value. So what do we do with that? We junk it. But that's not an advanced progressive vision of the public lands nor of the natural world as a whole. It's a primitive, stupid, benighted vision. 
The first line was really interesting to me in chapter 19. I find that interviewing conservation biologists is ter- terribly dispiriting. What did you mean by that? Well, conservation biologists generally, you know, have a pretty, <laughs> pretty dim view of humanity in that they are at least techno-industrial humanity in that they spend so much of their lives watching species they love crushed under the machine of economic growth. Um, So given the late hour of our modernity in which we are crushing lots and lots of living things, beloved of these conservation biologists, they're in a state of despair. And so that's why I was saying that conversations with them is very dispiriting. They will tell you that things are bad. They're really bad. And they will remark on what I remarked a moment ago, which is that how do we find a way to protect those species that for their intrinsic value, um, regardless of whether they can be, they can be monetized. How do you do that? Because that's, that's really the goal of a conservation biologist, to, to take our ecological understanding and remove it from the market dynamic and to say that the wild things have value no matter what, because they, they evolved out of creation. That's it. That's all we need to say. But that's not what our society dictates. So We're facing the wrong direction. When you, when you look at a tree frog, most people are just like, that's, they don't have the same response as you and I do. When you see something beautiful, just and, and common, you know, not the charismatic megafauna, as Michael Soule would call mm. them. But. Well, fundamentally, it comes down to the ideological structures of anthropocentrism. The, uh, and I, I write about this in an essay for, um, for Powell's, the, um, the bookseller there in Oregon. Um, they asked me to write a little something about my book or excerpt my book. And I decided to write about, <laughs> get this, Judeo-Christianity, the Judeo-Christian value system. Now, there's a great uh, essay that began as a um, lecture by a medieval historian of the Middle Ages named Lynn White Jr., which was presented in 1966. And in this lecture, Lynn White describes Christianity, the Judeo-Christian value system, as the, quote, the most anthropocentric religion the world has ever seen. And he posits that Western civilization, being the heir to Judeo-Christian values, has never truly escaped that set of values, that we are heirs to Christianity. Even among those who say, nah, man, I'm, I'm an atheist. Well, according to White, and I think he's correct, our whole techno-scientific system of thought arises in the late Middle Ages through the Renaissance and into the modern age of discovery. And that's all basically born out of Christian worldview. So anthropocentrism is a problem. We're all trained to think of Homo sapiens as the godlike species on earth, as the great arbiter of all things. Our pleasure and our concerns, our needs are higher than the tree frogs, than the oaks or the aspens or the or the beech or the birch or the grizzly bear or the sage grouse. You know, we are the chosen ones. And um, 
and we lord over all the earth. It's, it's, it's hard to, I mean, when you have a whole civilization that teaches you that, that value system, it's pretty hard to escape it. Here's an example. Yesterday, I'm sitting, I live up in the Catskill Mountains. I'm sitting, I'm reading. It's late at night. There's one light on. The bugs are all gathered around. And some crazy insect, right? Uh, a beetle of some kind. Big, beautiful, translucent blue beetle lands on my book. And without a thought, man, I flick it. Now, can you imagine the suffering and pain that I inflicted on that, that little beetle simply because it was annoying me? It was crawling on the page where I was writing and because the page was reflecting the light under which I was reading and it was attracted to the light. Naturally so. And what do I do? I, I, just I didn't smash it, but I flicked it, man. Probably injured it, but without a thought. Without a and then afterwards, I said to myself, my God, man, what, are you, what the fuck did you just do? That's a beetle. <laughs> it's a beautiful beetle. And just because he was crawling on your page, man. So, you know, we're all trapped in that thinking. And it's yeah. hard to escape it. You have to practice a kind of like Buddhistic mindfulness all the time to escape that training. Right now, we are unbalanced. We've gone to the extreme of consumption, the extreme of growth, the extremes of greed and ambition and this has to stop you know to come back to buddhism the middle path the middle path mm. is where it's at to find the middle path we can find the middle path but there's an entire propaganda brainwashing system out there that tells us not to follow the middle path it tells us to follow the extreme path of materialistic acquisition material ambition invidious display, conspicuous consumption, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of times people will couch this as there are people on federal lands in federal wildlife services, the forest service, BLM, and we, we do an us against them kind of thing as if none of the things that you just mentioned were really a problem, but how much are we driving all of those problems, all of those bad actors to do the things that they're doing. I mean, it's a resources issue and we're the ones consuming those resources. How much are we mm. culpable in, in the pressure that that puts on? And then the people who just greedily go, ah, there's opportunity here. I can make a huge mm. amount of money here. If these guys are going to keep consuming like this, I can just go in here and thwart the ESA you know, I got my buddies on the inside and I can make some big bucks. I mean, if we did the middle way more often, how much would some of that be mitigated just by people turning towards something much more simple of a life than we live on average today? I, I assume it, things would be better. And yes, you're right. We are all, we are culpable in the resource extraction that goes on in the public lands as long as we're consuming those resources. Absolutely. Are we culpable, however, for the neglect of ecosystem health? Are we culpable for the failure to follow federal environmental law by the very regulators who are tasked with following that law? No, I don't think so. <clears throat> I think that the, 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 the guilty party there, uh, there include the, um, all the extractive industries that put pressure on Congress and on the regulatory agencies to not follow the law. There are people who obviously don't want your book out there. 
course they're not going to, but there's also this problem. I don't feel like a lot of people just in society want to hear what you have to say in this book because they don't want to know all of this. What do we do about, how do we talk about that as conservationists? When we go out, we learn from your book, we get all these new stats and stories and things like that. How do we go back out and um, not be that guy at the party who brings everybody down? Cause they, they want to have a solution where they still get to drive their car and look at their screen. And we are just, not yeah. going to have that message for them. It's a problem. <laughs> I'm not sure, though, that you're correct in that people don't want to hear the message. Maybe it's a harsh one um, and unforgiving, but it also is one that's leveling, basically saying, hey, we're all in this together. We can make collective decisions about the public lands. It's a, it's a commons like our hyper-capitalistic nation surprise experiment in socialism, the public lands are. So we can engage this issue collectively, together. Maybe all make some sacrifices. Because if we don't all make sacrifices, it ain't going to work. So it can't be like, hey, the 99%, you guys need to, you're going to pay carbon taxes, you're going to curtail your consumption, you're going to become poorer. But the oligarchy and the 1%, they're going to continue flying all over the planet and, and plying the seas with their yachts and throwing you know, $500,000 uh, wedding parties for their children uh, and buying you know, uh, diamonds galore for their wives. I mean, no. No, they have to go down too. The stuff that our tax money pays for that's the surprising things that people will find in your book about that alone, how much is true the term of, of welfare ranching. I mean, it is so true. It's not hyperbole. It is in every sense of the word true. Uh, I don't think people really understand how much we pay for all that stuff. And that's inequality. That's somebody running a business on our public lands and benefiting from it in a way that we can't. And it's supposed to be equally shared among everyone. And that's a case that's of where right. it is clearly not. I think you, you nailed it, man. I think that's exactly right. We're talking about land on which no one person is supposed to be privileged above the other. And yet you have people, institutions, and corporations that are indeed privileged and that represent an incredible uh, system of inequality on the commons. Their privilege is organized and protected and facilitated by the very federal land management regulators who are supposed to be protecting us and our land. And that, to me, is an intolerable situation. And it ties into the broader issue, yes, of inequality globally, an intolerable situation that must come to an end. The book is This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West by Christopher Ketchum. Chris, thank you so much for being here today. I wish we could talk even more. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.